In this present crisis, government is not the solution to our problem. Government is the problem. This is the I Spy Radio Show. You and I have a rendezvous with destiny. Keeping an eye on big government. We the people tell the government what to do. It doesn't tell us. The trouble with our liberal friends is not that they're ignorant. It's just that they know so much that isn't so. And now, here is your host, Mark Anderson. The only thing that makes misery tolerable is knowing for certain that someone else is even more miserable and worse off than you are. Sort of like how people in New York City look at Portland. Yes, things are horrible here in New York, but thank God we're not living in Portland. I'm not sure where people in Portland look to. San Francisco, maybe? But even down at the bottom of the food chain, whether it's San Francisco or Portland, there's still hope. It's the hope that things will be better that keeps us going, even in our most darkest hours. The belief that when all seems lost, something will happen out of nowhere that changes things for the better. Normally, we would look to our leaders. But does it feel right now like the entire political world has been running full speed for the crazy cliff and many have already jumped off? And there they are hanging in midair, turn around and shout at the rest of us, come on, it's not crazy if we all jump in. Nowhere is crazy more apparent than how our government approaches spending, as if there is no amount of money that is too insane to spend. But there are solutions out there, and the way they eventually win out is because people in saner states than New York or Oregon are trying economic solutions that work, solutions that keep state spending in check that actually build prosperity for their people. When everything is crazy in your state, look to states that are sane. And fortunately, one organization, the American Legislative Exchange Council, or ALEC, has been working with states to make them sane and keep them sane. ALEC has a tremendous track record, so even if things are insane in Oregon, there are islands of sanity out there. I'd like to welcome back Jonathan Williams. He is ALEC's Executive Vice President of Policy and their Chief Economist, so he is right there in the thick of things, Jonathan, it is great to talk to you today. Well, great to be back with you, my friend. It is always greetings from the land of make-believe here in Washington, D.C. It must never tire you to look out the window and see unicorns and elves and fairies just traipsing by it on an endless parade there. <laughs> yes, exactly. If it, if it was just that harmless, right? It's the government <laughs> lockdowns and all the big stuff that's happened over the last that's couple right. of years here. Yeah. That's, that's the thing to worry about. Yeah, the elves are out there mugging people on the street here. So to get our discussion going, you guys have a great milestone. It's 50 years. Alec has been around. That's a huge milestone. So congrats on that. Uh, what would you say, looking back, have been some of Alec's biggest wins? Well, that's a great question. And thank you for that. It's really been incredible to be a part of at least the last uh, going on 16 years myself of Alex's 50-year uh, track uh, record and just uh, an incredible celebration we're going to have later on this year in Washington, D.C. here as we bring in tons of our alumni members uh, from Congress and governors and former state legislators, bring them back to celebrate the 50 years of trusted policy solutions that Alec has brought to the debate. And uh, it's been really incredible. Uh, and yeah, I think you, you asked the question about what are you know some of the biggest wins of Alec over these 50 years. And that's 
a, that's tough to narrow down. There's been some big ones. I mean, more recently, we've had just incredible uh, movements on you know tax cuts, as we've talked about many times mm-hmm. through our rich states, poor states, you know, project and seeing the states look to eliminate income taxes and become more competitive. And just last year, we had the five states that became flat taxes, as we talked about on a previous episode, and just an incredible movement towards a more a taxpayer-focused way of doing business and more pro-business uh, policies in many, many states across the country. And that's been something incredible. I know lots of great case studies of that, California's recent examples and some others learning from bad examples as well. But I think you go back further, uh, you know, and it's kind of coming full circle as well in 2023 here is one of the successes where Alec was really at the tip of the spear in the 1990s uh, was on the issue of education freedom and school Mm. choice and and dollars following parents and and following students instead of bureaucracies and buildings. And uh, and that's been something that really started with some smaller uh, projects, even in Milwaukee, Wisconsin in the 1990s and Jeb Bush uh, at a much larger scale in Florida in the early 2000s, but uh, really nothing to, as to what we've seen in the most recent years. Uh, just take that to a whole other level. Yes. We saw mm-hmm. West Virginia and Arizona in the last couple of years, and now just this year so far, we've seen Iowa and Utah move towards universal school choice where the dollars do follow the parents and, and kids versus uh, bureaucracies, and uh, that's been something incredible. And even as we talk, we see in Arkansas legislation moving very quickly based on Sarah Huck B. Sanders uh, talked the other day in response to President Biden's State of the Union, uh, talking about that being one of her top tier goals as the new newly elected governor of Arkansas. And so I think we are in a magic moment right now mm-hmm. for school choice and rethinking how education is delivered across the country. Yeah, those are two big ones, but I mean, there's so many others, including uh, tort reform and uh, making sure that uh, legal systems are getting rethought and becoming more uh, pro-employer and uh, anti-trial lawyer in many cases that uh, shut down business environments in many states. And welfare reform was a huge one. Let's not forget about that one. Before it happened in Washington that President Clinton vetoed it a couple times before he signed it, we had, um, of course, at the state level, John Engler and Tommy Thompson, two great Midwestern governors who are both ALEC alums, by the way, and two of our ALEC founders, uh, pushed welfare reforms in those two states as really being ahead of the curve. And once again, good ideas trickling upwards to Washington, D.C., and, and then again, the, the Newt Gingrich Congress taking it and running with that and getting it across the finish line at the end of the day. So those are just a few, uh, but those are really some incredible ones that really stand out as being uh, victories that ALEC uh, had its uh, fingerprint all throughout. Well, the school choice is something that we've been following the last few weeks. In fact, I've got some questions later on for you on that one. And I, I agree with you. That is absolutely exciting uh, what is going on there in the school choice uh, uh, venues there. So, But it's never a smooth road to success. What are some things that Alec has wanted to get done or still trying to get done but just haven't been able to do yet? Well, there's there's a lot there too, and uh, you know even some of the areas where we've seen incredible success, we've seen some uh, areas where it hasn't broken through, and let's say certain states that you think it would have. You know, let's talk you know, for a minute about the movement towards the freedom to work, right to work movement that has swept many Midwestern states, including my home state of Michigan, a birthplace of the UAW union that I never thought in my lifetime I'd see right to work. 
But our ALEC members a decade ago made it happen there. We saw it with Scott Walker and other Midwestern states, but then we've seen it uh, in other kind of right-leaning states stall out. Uh, we're in Missouri, uh, in Ohio, in other states that haven't passed it yet. I think that's still potentially coming. Uh, we've seen uh, states that, uh, while we've seen great movement on the flat tax and states becoming more competitive with their tax codes, you know, it's been uh, nearly 40 years since we've seen a state repeal its personal income tax. That's something that we know is a good economic move, and we know states are moving in that direction, but it's very difficult to go uh, from, let's say, getting 30 or 40 percent of your state revenue from the income tax to zeroing it out. And so how do you get there through positive pro-taxpayer budget reforms and spending control? That's a long-term opportunity. And another one that we've seen shining example in Colorado with the Taxpayers' Bill of Rights to limit the growth of government spending, back to that point about taxes, you know, Colorado remains the gold standard of tax and spending limits, and we haven't seen a broad adoption, although I think we're moving in the somewhat right direction in some states right now. So there are some areas that some of these free market issues haven't been widely adopted yet, but I think we have enough success stories and case studies where the states that have tried them, that it makes that uh, next level of adoption that much easier. Well, economics is always difficult for people. I think more so for legislators, especially when their entire focus is about spending money rather than how you get that money. So um, anyway, let's go and take a break. Uh, We'll have more with Jonathan Williams. He's with Alec. They have been at it for 50 years. Uh, Some great successes there. Coming up, we're going to talk about the government debt ceiling, something no Congress seems to want to fix. So is there a fix? Stay with us. And welcome back. We're talking today to Jonathan Williams. He is the Vice President of Policy and the Chief Economist there at the American Legislative Exchange Council. You can find them at alec.org. And uh, always some great resources there. In fact, we're going to be talking about some of those resources they have for uh, legislatures. uh, So you can send them directly to uh, your representatives. And uh, we'll get to that here in a little bit. And so, Jonathan, I I mentioned in going out there, the government debt ceiling. This is something I definitely want to talk to you about. But getting back to some of your successes there, you mentioned you were able to get flat tax there in some of these states. Have you started to see the effect of those yet and how successful they've been? Well, yeah, we, uh, we've seen a little bit of the initial success, um, but some of these are so new, right, that some of the phase-in uh, requirements and rules on what tax year it phases in are not fully in right, effect right. yet at the lower rates, at least. And so it's going to take some time before we see the robust you know, economic feedback loop that you would expect on, let's say, GDP growth and income growth, job growth, um, some of the early uh, trends that we see on, let's say, interstate migration since the census just came out with their 2022 estimates at the end of December, right around the holidays, is you know, we are seeing um, you know, just an uptick in migration to the no-income tax states and the low-tax states. The flat-tax states are doing generally very well with those uh, most recent round of numbers. Unfortunately, as you know well, I mean, Oregon, that had been doing somewhat well when it comes to the migration data over the last decade, which, of course, got to the congressional mm-hmm. seat question. Uh, saw a huge retrench, uh, retrenchment there in the numbers and saw uh, pretty large negative one-year numbers in yes. census uh, from uh, from that. So that's some concerning signs. But overall, to your point, is yes, the flat tax states, Arizona being the state with the lowest income tax right now of any state that has an income tax is just booming. And uh, as long as the newly elected governor there doesn't uh, backtrack on the progress that's been made between school choice and uh, the flat tax and tax reform, I fully expect Arizona is going to continue to move in the right direction. So of all the taxing systems, is flat tax the way to go? I mean, is flat tax for every state, do you think? 
Well, you know, the the right flat tax, in my view, is a zero percent income tax for the flat tax, okay. right? <laughs> so that's actually that's uh, I think the right way is to avoid capital based taxes, taxes on income altogether, and to uh, look at right sizing government first of all, because let's right now the no income tax states spend on average between fifty and sixty percent less mm. per person than the 41 states with income taxes. That's the key to their success, is a right-sized government first. Now, secondly, once you get government in a more right-sized framework, uh, then you can go about uh, raising the necessary revenue for core government functions in a way that's much, much less damaging to the economy than an income tax, such as a retail sales tax or other elements like that that are a broad-based consumption tax that don't penalize work and and investment in living and working and starting a business in your state, right? I mean, especially progressive income taxes where it penalizes you more the more success that you have within those state lines. And when you put a price on something, right, when you you, uh, tax something, you get less it. When you put a higher price on something, back to Econ 101 price right. theory, you get less uh, demand, uh, quantity demand, it goes down, right? And so uh, that's exactly what we're seeing at the state level, uh, states that focus on taxing consumption, reduce the size of government, and become more efficient. Uh, that is the right way to go. So the, the right flat tax is a 0% flat tax. Why do you think that's so uh, such a difficult concept for people to understand, that when you tax things more, you collect fewer taxes because people cut back on spending. And when you lower tax rates, you actually get more tax revenue. I, I, I don't understand why that's so difficult. I mean, it's a, it's a simple principle of lowering prices. I mean, if that didn't work, then no store would ever have sales. Everything 20% off tends to get people in the door. Yeah, exactly. You know, and, uh, you know, to some degree, some states and cities try to say that, hey, we're a luxury good, basically, Mm. and that you can, you know, they're going to be able to charge more and people are still going to demand our goods. And, uh, you know, that doesn't usually work well. Back to your retail example, stores don't go out there and say, come in for 20 percent higher prices. Uh, we pe- we compete based on prices, and uh, you know when you look at that every every uh, big uh, intersection in, in suburban areas across the country that has more than one gas station on the corner, and we see them all over the place, and it's stubbornly this way where inevitably one of those gas stations is going to be 20 cents or 30 cents a gallon more expensive for unloaded gasoline. Guess which gas station's busy right, and which right, one's right. not, right? And so I think it's the same dynamic at the state level where people are going. The people are moving to states that value lower prices and lower taxes are a direct way to reduce prices to live and work and invest mm. in a state. So moving on to the government debt ceiling, and we're going to talk about that in this and, and the next segment here. Biden has staked out the position that he wants to, um, that any increase in the debt ceiling will have to have zero spending cuts. So is, is that the official Democrat position going forward is we will never stop spending more ever? Well, I hope not. I mean, that would be a massive mistake, right? Both from a uh, economic perspective and even a political perspective. I mean, you you ask the American people as to does America spend too little or too much? And it's a pretty overwhelming response that government does too much at the federal level, and taxes are too high, and spending is too high, and of course our debt is too high. And you get to the kind of the common sense. You know, uh, solution on this scenario is that we absolutely have to uh, reduce spending to get this debt uh, limit uh, situation under control because, I mean, this is a crisis of our own making, and it's one that, uh, you know, has uh, generally put a lot of pressure on those that believe in lower government and more responsive federal government to either you do something or else 
still going to be the, there's going to be this default. I mean, there's the United States is not going to default on our debt, and there's lots of easy, I'll say easy in quotation marks. There's lots of common sense ways to handle this without any kind of uh, new uh, debt ceiling being uh, broached. And you've got to look at the the spending. There's absolutely no way to address the debt ceiling without addressing the spending. And so, if the Biden administration is going out on that limb. Uh, that's a very dangerous position, both from a economics perspective and even for a political perspective for the White House. Well, he keeps trying to say on Twitter that he has lowered spending the last two years and lowered the deficit. Meanwhile, we're pushing up against that debt ceiling after just having increased it, uh, I, I think, a year and some months ago. So is there any truth to him saying that he's lowered spending? This is an April Fool's Day or something, is it, Mark? <laughs> I know. I, uh, you know, I, <laughs> I, I, I think that uh, you know, there's. Uh, I guess the question is, is uh, compared to what? Uh, and you know, this is in the strange world of Washington baseline, you know, budgeting versus actual spending. And sometimes people play these games to say we cut spending when actually the actuals are actually higher than they were the year before. And I think this is one of these scenarios that maybe in some you know wild assumption of where spending would be uh, from <laughs> from the highest possible estimate. I don't know if he's uh, not hit that highest estimate or not, and maybe that's what he's saying. He's reduced spending, but when you look at the actual numbers here, back to what what everyday Americans see as a, how you create a budget or how you look at uh, an equation such as this, is you look at what we're spending now in in total versus what we were spending two right. years ago, right? And uh, by all uh, legitimate and nonpartisan measures, we're spending more now in the United States than we were spending uh, two years ago. And that's uh, just not uh, something yeah. that's in question. The other thing that is not in question is the national debt has gone up just exponentially here almost yeah. over the last um, you know, couple of you know, decades, right? I mean, you look at, you know, you really look at the Obama era, when we were talking about the danger of the federal government sending hundreds of billions of dollars to bail out states, and by the way, when the federal government sends money to the states, that's all kinds of uh, problems when it comes to uh, mm -hmm. controlling mm -hmm. the way that states do business and getting away from this idea of state autonomy and federalism, which empowers all these policy ideas that we were just talking about in the last segment. But when that happens, uh, when you go back to that was just 2009, coming out of the financial crisis, the national debt was under 10 trillion dollars. Now here we are, 31 and a half trillion dollars of national yeah. debt. It um, is, this is, is undisput as, not disputable. Yeah, it is just astounding. I think what Biden is saying is, well, I didn't spend as much as I wanted to, and somehow that's a cut in spending. So, okay, let's go ahead and take a break. We'll continue our thoughts here with the uh, government uh, debt ceiling and what needs to happen there. Everyone stay with us. We'll have more Jonathan Williams of ALEC. We're talking with Jonathan Williams. He is the Vice President of Policy and the Chief Economist at the American Legislative Exchange Council. A great organization. I would certainly highly encourage your, you to get a hold of your legislator and uh, have them join that. Jonathan, just in case somebody's listening that has that kind of pull with their legislator, how would they, they get their legislators to join you guys? Yeah, we, uh, it's a great question. We invite legislators across the board to become members of ALEC. We don't ask for government support like other legislative organizations do. And we just, you know, legislators pay $100 a year to be a part of the ALEC network and to join, uh, you know, thousands of legislators across the country that have been ALEC members over our 50-year history. And so it's easy, as easy as going to ALEC.org, and there's a registration page there for legislators to sign up, or if you're an individual 
that's who wants to get involved. We also have a, a way to get involved as individuals as well. And we encourage everybody to check out our website and, and join us in our in our fight for better policy and for uh, free market ideas across the state. I'd love it. So um, getting back to the government debt ceiling uh, debate here, is, is there any legitimate plan to reduce and even pay off the national debt? I mean, if so, what does that look like? Well, I mean, not from the current administration anyway. No, I certainly mean, we've not. Got Friends on uh, friends on Capitol Hill that are I think talking about some some good ideas. Uh, Senator Mike Braun from Indiana being one uh, that uh, I've interviewed uh, at our Winter Alec conference in D.C. a number of weeks ago, uh, and he's looking at ways to you know craft a what would be somewhat of a, a federal balance budget uh, requirement. Uh, whether that would mean the states you know raising their voices to say enough is enough and we need to have a balanced budget requirement, uh, or the federal government actually. Uh, crafting legislation to do that. But I think uh, we have to look at uh, that approach and also the kind of broader question which is, you know, as Milton Freeman always, uh, you know, said, uh, you know, a balanced budget is is great, but it's not the end goal. The end goal is stopping the growth of overspending relative to the size of the economy and right. our pocketbooks individually as taxpayers. And I think that's what Senator Braun and others, Senator Mike Lee has been a great champion on this from Utah, and Ted Cruz from Texas, uh, Senator Cruz and others, uh, certainly many in the House as well, uh, have done a great job raising awareness around what it would mean to stop the growth of of overspending. And, you know, obviously right now it's only the House that is controlled by Republicans. So they'd have to you know, work on some sort of a bipartisan agreement, which in, in this Washington, D.C. is uh, ever elusive. It's not the you know, Washington, D.C. of the Reagan administration where you had a lot of conservative Democrats, like back at the time, Phil Graham of Texas, a conservative Democrat mm-hmm. voted for the Reagan tax cuts and much of the Reagan agenda. Um, so in, unfortunately, this hyper uh, politicized and over uh, kind of part, partisan and basis where Washington is divided these days, now that's going to be difficult. But I do commend the work of Senator Braun and uh, folks uh, like that that have really taken up this idea of what would it take to have a long-lasting balanced budget agreement that really gets at the core issue of overspending. So be on the lookout. I mean, he's, he's one to watch. Well, uh, we certainly will keep him in our crosshairs. Um, so on, on Tuesday, the Biden administration went before the Supreme Court to defend its attempt to eliminate student debt with basically a wave of its uh, of his magic pen there, it was not exactly warmly received by all reports. So if Biden thinks that he has the power to wipe out student debt, why not simply wipe out the national debt? Yeah, that's a very good question. And uh, that gets back to probably AOC's idea. Why don't we just mint a few trillion dollar coins that's and right. back to your fairy tales and rainbows and unicorn <laughs> idea here of Washington, D.C. And that's what gives Washington, D.C. such a bad name, you know, a bad rap when it comes to uh, individuals and families having to take care of their own budgets at a kitchen table or small businesses having to make ends meet and live within their means. And they see just kind of this crazy rhetoric of, you know, outside of any kind of legislative authority, uh, the president of the United States waving kind of a baton to say, I'm just going to go ahead and by uh, uh, dictate or cancel uh, a large uh, point of uh, portion of debt across the United States. I mean, it'd be nice if we could, but uh, government doesn't have that authority. And I think that's where you're going to find uh, this Supreme Court probably come down, hopefully by the end of this uh, term in June. Yeah. So I had mentioned in my opener last week that, um, and we're moving now in, into some of the insane spending we've seen here, on, certainly on the state level. So I had mentioned in my opener last week that California blew through $100 billion in free COVID money from the federal government. But in their reckless spending, they not only blew through that, but now they're spending so much and losing people and businesses along the way that now they're facing up to a $30 billion deficit. 
So how on earth did they manage to spend that much so quickly and have nothing to show for it? I mean, is anything better in California after spending $100 billion? <laughs> well, I'll tell you what, um, that's a very good question. And California is often served as a case study uh, for what not to do. Right. And uh, once again, it proves that uh, in spades. And you, know, you look at just this profligate spending, you look at the uh, probably the nature of the one-time money in many cases coming from the federal government related to these bailouts of the states that I just talked about. This happening again. Uh, California probably not learning the lessons even from the last mm -hmm. round of bailouts mm -hmm. where they went on and created new programs and hired new full-time employees and had ongoing expenses with the one-time money in many cases. And then, of course, uh, we're going to fast forward to this budget deficit scenario where they're 25 or $30 billion in the hole. Now, one very interesting thing that was different this time, which I think everybody ought to pay attention to. This was really shocking, even for, for me that follows this every day, is the Wall Street Journal editorial page reported on this that even Gavin Newsom, Governor Gavin Newsom of California, liberal Democrat, obviously, admitted that one of the key drivers for the fact that California went from a $100 billion surplus on paper to this $30 billion shortfall uh, is uh, the idea of, in addition to blowing through the money, which he didn't talk about the overspending aspect, but what he did talk about is fascinating. He said, this is a direct result of California depending too much on volatile sources of tax revenue. We talked a little bit about the different mixes of revenue that states could choose and income taxes being the most damaging. Well, guess what? Even Gavin Newsom said, we rely too heavily on capital gains and dividend tax. Guess what? Silicon Valley's not doing very well right now and the companies are laying off tens of thousands of employees that we've all seen in the news coverage. And guess what? They're not paying out the dividends. They're not seeing the capital gains yep, realizations. Yep. And if even Gavin Newsom admits, folks, that depending on progressive income taxes is a big problem, look out. That's a real That's problem. A, yeah. I, I find it kind of funny that he he considers free cash from the federal government a volatile source of income. That's pretty amazing. Okay, uh, everyone stay with us coming up more on economics and out-of-control spending and how we rein it all in before states or we the people go broke. More with Jonathan Williams of ALEC. That's the American Legislative Exchange Council. You can find them at ALEC.org. This is the Ice Five Radio Show. We're talking about spending today by the government, and uh, we're doing that by talking with Jonathan Williams. He is with the American Legislative Exchange Council. He's their vice president of policy and chief economist. Uh, you can find out more by heading to alec.org. And uh, Jonathan, um, just to kind of wrap things up here with the spending, the $2 trillion American Rescue Plan. I mean, we're coming up on the two-year anniversary of this. It was passed in March of 2021. Have things improved with that $2 trillion rescue plan, and what exactly got rescued? That's a very good question. I, you know, I, I don't think that uh, you can make the case that things have been improved. I mean, you look what the inflation numbers coming out, almost mm -hmm. a direct result of that additional couple of trillion dollars getting pumped into already overheated economy that had already seen trillions of dollars pumped into it uh, for pandemic related issues. And of course, it was somewhat claimed that this was still a pandemic related issue at that point. But you look at the hundreds of billions of dollars that were sent to states and in uh, cities, uh, and we had made the point at the time saying, you know, now that only is this a huge problem for federalism long term and states losing the ability to govern themselves when they get addicted to the federal cash, uh, but then it sort of sets up this volatile source of revenue issue that we just talked about with Gavin Newsom. Uh, and then the issue is, of course, states already were in many cases, the vast majority of states already had budget surpluses and already seen revenue on the uptick 
before this money was sent to them. And so it was purely an inflationary uh, play. In many cases, you know, obviously, you can always point to some something that got funded there that's a tangible benefit. I mean, this is back to the public choice theory of economics, which is difficult to overcome in some cases when it comes to this, these big spending packages, is you can point to these concentrated benefits for a few, you know, everyone, you know, city's got, you know, X project or Y project or this road got paved or you had a new sewer system here or you had some broadband investment here. And, and, and many of those things are inherently, you know, good. But on the totality of it, I mean, is, is it worth racking up the credit card at $2 trillion more and having 40-year high inflation after the fact? And, of course, we're already you know, just seeing that sugar high come to an end in, in mm. equities markets right now with additional, you know, storm clouds on the horizon. Yes. That's a much more complicated question. Well, I, I'm glad you raised that because that was exactly where I was going because all of the spending is happening at a time when some major players are warning that we're due for an economic downturn. Among them is uh, Morgan Stanley. They just issued a warning earlier this week saying the U.S. stock uh, stock market has entered a death zone and warns that stocks, especially um, I think it was the S&P, could drop 26% or more in the coming months. So do these kinds of warning signs have any impact on government, state, or federal um, uh, bureaucrats or do they just ignore warning signs and plow ahead reality be damned? I mean, in your opinion, are we heading to some sort of reckoning here? Yeah, we're not out of the, the woods yet when it comes to paying for these, you know, four or five trillion dollars in additional ramp up in spending. Uh, there, the Federal Reserve, uh, based on recent numbers, clearly does not have inflation under control. Rates are going to have to go up on interest rates additionally. And of course, by definition, that's going to reduce aggregate demand across the economy. That's going to hurt real estate. And we've already seen really bad numbers out of new housing and uh, real estate numbers across many markets in the country. That will continue to get worse as rates go up. Uh, and then you have to look at the overall, uh, you know, markets when it comes to the equities markets. And you look at these numbers, those uh, estimates from J.P. Morgan and other uh, market uh, analysts, and you see some real potential for downside there as well as rates continue to go up. So, no, I think there's still a lot of pain, unfortunately. And this is direct result of this overspending. When you get to the question of, you know, is that $2 trillion, would anything positive come from it? And, of course, you can point to a few things here or there when it comes to the projects. But I think uh, we've seen the pain in many cases already, but I think there's a lot more to come. And, uh, you know, this is just such a huge unraveling of when it comes to monetary policy, when when we see everything that's been out there in the market uh, for far too long in many cases. You know, this is the issue with inflation and government reactions inflation is inflation happens more quickly than government realizes. We yeah. saw it with commodities first, but by the time government realized it was time to pump the brakes on monetary policy, it's too late. Yeah. And you know we're going to pay for this for, I think, for quite some time in the future, Mark, unfortunately. Yeah. I'm an optimist by nature, but this is, uh, this is not an optimistic scenario of where the market's headed right now. No, it certainly is not. And um, so I want to start shifting gears here towards some solutions because uh, we want to talk fiscal policy in this and the next segment it being legislative season here in Oregon. And you guys just released a really great publication. It's the 2023 Essential Policy Solutions. It's available as a free PDF download. We'll put a link to that on today's show page at iSmartRadio.com. Just look for show 13-09 and then scroll to the bottom and you'll see it down there in the links and additional information. In the intro to that, it says, um, for 2023, our policy team has analyzed the best free market ideas to add to the important discussions taking place across the states and at the federal level in Washington, D.C. And you've got my attention uh, as far as coming out with the, the best free market ideas. So give us some highlights from this. Well, there's a lot of great things to focus on there. And um, 
Over the 50 years, we at ALEC have developed nearly 1,000 pieces of model policy, and all of them are available on our website uh, to check out in a searchable way. So I hope you spend some time looking at different free market policy ideas. But to get them down to this digestible uh, format that we do at the Essential Policy Solutions document that you talked about, um, we really do have to prioritize, and each one of our policy 10 task forces that we have has something there. So there's something for everybody. But let me focus on, I think, the three big you know, top tier priorities, and that is the economy, as we've been talking about, it's education reform, as we've just seen this incredible moment for education and school choice, and it's the uh, energy and developing more affordable and reliable American energy. And so a few of the things, I mean, one is, we've talked about this a little bit, but the, the uh, progress that's been made when it comes to the area of states, and just recently, the federal uh, government with the House voting on a, a joint resolution condemning the use of ESG and any politically-based investing in pension investment decisions, uh, that's been something that's really important. And I think as state legislators uh, just kind of continue to see the headwinds that both individual retirees uh, and, uh, and savers have have on their 401ks and Roth right, IRAs right. and other investment decisions, as well as state pension systems uh, that are already way underwater when it comes to their funding status. You know, we're seeing, uh, I think, a really important movement right now from the states and even the federal level to push back and say enough is enough. We don't want ESG or other politics to uh, get within uh, pension investing decisions. That should be looking at the, how to get the best return over uh, the, uh, the, the long term for the beneficiaries and the pension pensioners across the country. So that's a huge area that we're focusing on this year. And of course, when you look at uh, so many of the others on education and the economy and Mm -hmm. tax cuts, I mean, those are really the three E's, education, the economy and uh, energy uh, that that we've been putting the most focus on. Well, I definitely want to take a break here because ESG is a huge topic. And so uh, we'll come back on that. Everyone stay with us. We'll discuss that with Jonathan Williams next. If your state is an out-of-control train heading off the tax and spend cliff, the American Legislative Exchange Council is who you need to put your legislators in contact with. We're talking with Jonathan Williams, who is the Executive Vice President for Policy at ALEC and also their Chief Economist as well. Head to ALEC.org and you can find out more information there. And Jonathan, I want to talk to you about this ESG because this is something that I, I just don't understand why investors think this is a good idea. Is it just because it's somehow sexy or uh, is it entirely about politics? Well, you know, it's, it sounds great. In some cases, I mean, a lot of the folks that are behind ESG, in many, in some cases, they may be in it for the right reasons. You know, who could be against, you know, the stewardship of the environment? Who could be against better governance, right? I mean, but the the eyes, of course, in the beholder, how you define ESG, and that's that's really the trick. Is it almost to, you hesitate to criticize it because to criticize something, you have to define it first. And I think that currently ESG is almost not definable by most Americans. If you were to go down this, you know, and ask a hundred different Americans what their definition of ESG principles were, you get a hundred different answers. If you go to Capitol Hill and ask members of Congress, you get a hundred different answers. And so I think that's part of the challenge. But, you know, in, in, in essence, though, what's happened is this has been weaponized 
by the left uh, to uh, really uh, strangle American energy in many cases, but also to insert liberal politics, whether it's cultural, social, uh, or other style liberal politics, uh, and voice those onto people, whether they have a say in the issue or not. And, uh, you know, the way that I look at it is, you know, probably a year ago or two years ago, uh, most people would think uh, ESG, when you talk about the acronym, they might think it was a cardiac procedure. <laughs> uh, today, it's become a household acronym, right, thanks right. to just how radicalized it has been. And so, and that's why when legislators came to us and say, this is not responsible that uh, ESG style politics are being used with other people's money and pension systems, mm. where individuals are saying, we want to insert our liberal values, even in conservative state pension plans. And this is happening in places, even as Texas is right. uh, trying to fix this scenario. Uh, this is when it became uh, a top-tier issue for many of our ALEC legislators across the country to say, you want ESG principles in your own personal investing, and you may want to pay higher fees and get lower return. God bless you with your personal money. You can do that with your own. That's a free country. But don't do that with our pension systems right. that are already hugely underfunded, and don't try to project your values on us. Exactly. And so, I mean, that's where I think states are fighting back, and that's a very good thing. And in terms of ESG-focused investing being part of these um, – pension plans, is, is there something about ESG-focused investing that makes it inherently a bad investment? Well, right now, it's it's one of the worst things that you could have done with your portfolio in the last year, because generally, uh, and this is in shorthand, what, what happens in investing ESG is you divest from oil and gas. Uh, and you invest from energy and fossil fuels. And some states have actually passed laws. Maine was a state that passed a law that said every uh, one of our investment pools across the state of Maine will look to uh, divest from fossil fuel-related stocks over the next number of years. Well, guess what? If you had done that in 2022, uh, that would turn a very bad year into a horrific year for your portfolio because generally uh, an ESG-style uh, portfolio would maybe double or triple weight in tech uh, sector and uh, would uh, divest from oil and gas. And of course, you know how that played out uh, with investments mm -hmm. in the uh, in NASDAQ, uh, let's say, as an index versus where energy companies had been over the last year. And nobody could see in a crystal ball, of course, to see that that was coming, but it would have just played out very poorly. And of course, not just uh, this is a one example, but you, know, you go back 50 years in our research, uh, we've seen that if you divest from a hypothetical portfolio from uh, fossil fuels over a 50 year period versus just invest broadly in the marketplace using such an S&P. P500 index fund from Vanguard or something like that, you lose 22 to 23% on your total investment mm. by divesting from oil and gas over a 50-year period. So we're not cherry-picking just this year, which is according to one of the worst years to do that. We're looking over the long term, and that's why it's not fiduciary responsibility for states to, or, or any money manager with the fiduciary duty, to go down that road of divesting from fossil fuels. Well, and, and why this is so important to get right is because your report points out that unfunded state pension liabilities are growing rapidly, now totaling $8.28 trillion. I've actually seen estimates that are even higher than that. So if you're already in a hole, making poor investment decisions only for their political rewards rather than their financial rewards is going to make the hole even deeper. So how do you fix this? Is it Do you have to have legislation passed or can uh, state workers start forming lawsuits? 
Well, there's that, but uh, you know, I think their plans are, in some cases, putting forward rules to uh, to stop politically based investing or focusing on uh, long term uh, financial goals instead of anything that might be considered a divestment or short term option. But I really think the stronger protection, and this is one of the Alec model policies that we reference in our solutions guide, uh, is something that's catching on across many states this year, and that is to basically codify uh, the anti divestment efforts and to mm. say you just need to focus solely on the interest of the pensioner or the beneficiary and re- getting the best return that you can at a risk-adjusted basis. Common sense. I mean, this is essentially just taking from federal law under ERISA that was passed by Congress in the 1970s to put real protections for workers and retirees in those plans. And our argument is, if that protection is good enough for the workers that participate in ERISA plans in the private sector, why aren't those protections also good enough for police and fire and for in the states. Right. And I think if you want politics in your money, donate your own, not taxpayers or pensions. So, okay, let's go and take a break there. We'll wrap things up with Jonathan Williams. He's with ALEC. That's the American Legislative Exchange Council. Find them at ALEC.org. And welcome back in our final segment now on the Oxfire Radio Show. We're talking today to Jonathan Williams of ALEC. That's American Legislative Exchange Council. Visit them at ALEC.org. And uh, so, Jonathan, um, in the time that we have left here, we have been talking a lot, as I mentioned earlier, um, about parents' rights in education and, and school choice. And you guys have some policies in that uh, 2023 Essential Policy Solution Handbook, including the expansion of universal education savings accounts. And um, I knew that if there was a sensible and economic solution to what ails our education systems, Alec would be right there supporting it. So talk to us about Alec's model legislation, the HOPE Scholarship Act. Well, yes, yeah, it's, it's named after uh, what is passed in West Virginia a couple of years ago, led by Alec board member, um, just an incredible legislator, uh, Senator Patricia Rucker, who's an immigrant from Venezuela herself, and led the effort to pass the Hope Scholarship Plan in West Virginia, uh, which mm-hmm. essentially gets to the discussion from earlier, where dollars now will follow families in West Virginia. And uh, families would get a large percentage of the, the state aid that would go to their uh, normal education to be able to use on a uh, public, uh, private, or charter school of their choice. Uh, and uh, it also in- incorporates homeschooling to be able to uh, allow homeschoolers to uh, not be overregulated by the government, to, but to be able to, if they choose, uh, take part in uh, in program as well as in Arizona. Uh, just in the year after, in uh, the 2022 legislative session, Arizona also enacted mm-hmm. a broad-based uh, education savings account. They titled it somewhat different than the HOPE Scholarship Plan. But our model policy basically takes some of the best approaches of both Arizona and West Virginia and rolls that into the model policy. Uh, but essentially, it opens up this opportunity for parental empowerment and choice in education. And I think it's a fundamental reform uh, that we're seeing take off. As I mentioned, Sarah Huckabee Sanders is pushing the same uh, concept in Arkansas, a little bit uh, slightly different in all these cases in Utah and, and Iowa this year. Now, one thing that's really interesting about this discussion as many times as these are painted as anti-public education and like competition is a bad thing uh, for businesses or anywhere competition is has had but one interesting thing that in, in Utah and Arkansas specifically is included in the same package is an increase in teacher salaries so the starting salary uh, for a teacher an average teacher in Arkansas will go from I think 36 or 38 thousand to 50 thousand per year as they uh, enhance the school choice and opportunity for families across the board 
board. So, you know, in a surplus scenario where states have an ability uh, to have additional money to to put into educational systems, whether that's uh, empowering directly to families or into public education to strengthen public education, sometimes you're seeing all of the above in some of these packages. So the idea that this would be anti-teacher or anti-public education is a complete canard. Yeah, we actually discussed some of that last week um, with Donna Kreitzberg, and that was kind of surprising to me, is that as students move out of the public school system, there's actually more money left for the public schools. And so this notion that somehow school choice is going to defund all of the public schools is just crazy, because what it really does is eliminate bureaucratic waste and overhead. Um, so it, it, uh, one of the other things that you guys have uh, talked about there in, in your essential policy solutions is hospital transparency. Could you could you weigh in a bit on that? Well, it's uh, you know, this is a kind of a basic free market reform that you know just most people would think would be common sense and should be done anyways. But sure. as it turns out, anybody that's gone through a hospital uh, procedure that's extensive or testing or other items knows that it's uh, you know difficult, if not impossible, to figure out what the price of everything is. And mm-hmm. everything has gone to the third payer part, uh, party payer model through uh, whether it's insurance or if government is a payer in many cases through Medicare, Medicaid, and uh, Tricare and other government provided uh, insurance type. Uh, programs. And so uh, what we essentially are looking to do with this model policy is based on uh, what Colorado and Virginia just in the last year passed overwhelmingly, both on a Republican and and Democrat bipartisan basis, uh, which essentially put pricing uh, requirements to say, you know, uh, we should have the ability, consumers need the ability. And if to have a market, you must have an ability to look at what prices are like. And prices are the essential signals, obviously, that uh, put together the the basics of having a market. And without price signals, uh, we shouldn't be surprised that uh, price of healthcare continues to go up as quality continues to be meddling or go down in many cases. And so uh, this policy just adds that uh, transparency requirement. So all of a sudden, you're not surprised to say, you know, an MRI in the hospital costs three times as much as one that's a mile away. And that's good for individuals. It's good for uh, the healthcare system writ large. And if we want to get, I think, a handle on uh, the healthcare system, there's got to be a free market answer uh, to cost. Because what we had pre-Obamacare was certainly not free market, but oftentimes it gets painted that way. And I think it's really important as we decide as a country which way to go on healthcare going forward, there will be the single payer approach of Bernie Sanders and Elizabeth Warren and kind of socialized medicine. And there's got to be a better free market answer to this discussion around what's driving healthcare costs. And I think this hospital price transparency model policy of ours really gets a long ways there to actually start creating a market and let people economize and choose the best product and the best service at the lowest possible cost. Well, real quick, we've only got about a minute here with you. Oregon is looking to add about 24% to its budget, outpacing even Biden's inflation, which is pretty astonishing when you think about it. To do that, they will have to raise taxes and fees. How is this going to affect their ranking in rich states, poor states? Not positively, I'll tell you that. And uh, Oregon already has a, a poor ranking in rich states, poor states, as you know very well. Yes, we do. Uh, coming in at 41 uh, this last year in rich states, poor states, uh, some of the highest tax rates in the country already. And so uh, at a time when the vast majority of states are looking at ways to either rebate tax revenue back to taxpayers and refunds, or more importantly, reducing rates in the long term to provide that an extra incentive to become more competitive as a state, you know, moving in the wrong direction uh, than that 
is going to do uh, huge damage. And you know, a lot of times we say you can fall behind simply by standing still in this environment. But if you decide to go the wrong way, as all the states are going in the right way and trying to cut taxes, uh, that would do huge damage to Oregon, which is we talked about a little bit earlier. These last year migration numbers uh, do not look uh, good whatsoever for Oregon. Mm. And uh, that's got to be very concerning is, uh, you know, you've been an in-migration state. Uh, you've seen the people leave California in many cases looking to move to Oregon in retirement, uh, and you raise taxes and become less competitive, and all of a sudden that extra tax base coming into the state shuts off, and then you have much, much larger bu- budget problems going forward at that point. Right. Well, it would not surprise me that all the other states are marching forward, and there goes Oregon marching backwards. So, uh, unfortunately, we are up against the clock. Jonathan, well, thank you so much for your time today. Always great to be with you, my friend. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. If you're in or near Salem, I've been invited to speak at the Capital City Republican Women's meeting this Thursday, March 9th, starting at 11.30 a.m. I'll be talking about what Republicans can do to recover from the recent elections. Seating is limited, so please RSVP to ccrwsalem at reagan.com, ccrwsalem at reagan.com. Lunch is $14, coffee is $2, no cost to just come listen. The location will be given after you RSVP, preferably by March 6th, but definitely as soon as possible. If you miss that, head to iSpyRadio.com and we'll have an RSVP link on today's show page. I would love to meet you in person and I look forward to seeing you there. For those of you that can't make it, well, we're seeing if we can do something about that. And finally, just a reminder about that 2023 Essential Policy Solutions Handbook from Alec. It is available as a free PDF to make it that much easier to send to your legislator. See the links on this week's show page, that's show 13-09 on iSpyRadio.com. Download that, read it, and send it out, because as we say every week, the best information does you no good if you don't use it. Reagan, what do you think? I do not believe in a faith that will fall on us no matter what we do. I do believe in a faith that will fall on us if we do nothing. It's more than a show. It's self-defense. The I Spy Radio Show.